Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 222, Self-Evident Truths Relevant to Trinity or Incarnation Theories, Part 1. In the previous three episodes of the Trinity's podcast, we heard from famous Christian philosopher Thomas Reed. We heard him explain his idea of first principles or principles of common sense. These are truths which humans naturally know. And they're truths that we assume outside of the philosophy seminar, in courts, and in the rest of real life. There's quite a lot in what Reed said about first principles and also about causes of error that I think is directly applicable to competing theories about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But rather than dwell on those, I'll assume that you are able to draw those consequences for yourself. In this first part, I'm going to discuss 20 truths that I claim are self-evident truths, which are relevant to weighing various Trinity theories. Some of them are also relevant to weighing various views about incarnation, but I'll get more into those in part two next week. I think there's a problem when it comes to competing Trinity theories, which is that a lot of Christian thinkers, and philosophers specifically, are content to just discuss issues of coherence. Of course, whatever is self-contradictory is false, and we can rule it out as a theory worthy of our belief. If a theory is self-consistent, if it does seem to be coherent, then it's at least gotten over that hurdle. It's another question whether there's really any evidence for that theory, or whether it's the best of the competing theories that we have. Giving precise analyses, making distinctions, defending the coherence of various theories, this is what a lot of philosophers are good at, and they would sort of like to leave it there. There's the old saying, you know, that when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So there's this tradition in Christian apologetics and in Christian philosophy of imagining that the main challenge to the Trinity or to the Incarnation is that people claim it's incoherent. That is, they claim that it's self-contradictory. And so what you do is you say, aha, but you haven't proven that it's incoherent. And to show that it hasn't been proven, you might give some controversial example or model or analogy and say, haha, what about this? If this is what the Trinity is, that it's not incoherent, and you haven't ruled out this, so you haven't shown that the Trinity is incoherent. So what's wrong with that? Well, for one thing, this whole procedure ignores the fact that Trinity theories are many. Objections to some won't be objections to others. They just won't make sense. An allegation of incoherence against one may not work against another. There aren't just different emphases. There are actually different competing Trinity theories out there, both of which can't be true. There are many such pairs of contrary Trinity theories. The second problem with this procedure is that incoherence is only one potential problem that a theology can face. Your theory might be unintelligible. It might be something that can't be understood and so really can't be believed and acted on. 
your theory might be unsupported by scripture. Even worse, your theory might be contradicted by the New Testament. These last problems, that theories are unsupported by scripture and that they run contrary to scripture, these have always been the focus of Christian critics of various trinity theories and various incarnation theories. Coherence is not enough. We want claims which are true and which are reasonable for Christians to believe on the basis of divine revelation. It's actually hard to find, quote, critics who actually argue that the Trinity doctrine is incoherent, that is to say self-contradictory. Non-Christian critics usually just roll their eyes and walk away. They don't really engage with detailed Trinity theories, or even sometimes with the traditional language. They just scoff at the entire enterprise and just suppose that it's nonsense. And most of the time, they're probably not even clear about whether they mean nonsense in the sense of an incoherent set of claims or in the set of claims which simply can't be understood. Christian critics have always majored on the scriptural objections, that the scriptures don't support the theology, that there are bad arguments from the scriptures to their theology, that the whole thing involves mistaken readings of the Bible, and worst of all, that a theology is inconsistent with scriptural teaching. Now, of course, sometimes critics also focus on apparent incoherence of various Trinity theories, and sometimes they focus on the allegedly pagan origins of Trinity doctrines. Myself, I think those are not really relevant. It's better to focus on the actual known history of Christian theologies and Christologies, in my view. So in my own case, people know that I'm a biblical Unitarian Christian, and so people will reason, hey, this guy's not a Trinitarian. Therefore, this guy must think that the Trinity is incoherent. Nope, that is wrong. That is not my view. I do not go around saying that the Trinity is incoherent. And the reason I don't is because Trinity theories are many. What there is one of are formulations of language which need interpreting. There are various clashing interpretations. As I've shown in a number of peer-reviewed publications, there are multiple theories here. They're mostly mutually exclusive. Some of them arguably are incoherent, and others are not. And if you pay attention when I argue that Christians should hold to a Unitarian theology, you'll notice that I build the case from Scripture, and that the incoherence of the Trinity just doesn't come into it. Again, there isn't just one view there. So there's a lot more to critical thinking in this area than just the avoidance of obvious incoherence. Many Christians have a hard time admitting that non-Trinitarians can be Christians at all, but these same people will often be endlessly tolerant of just about any cockamamie theory, so long as its author intends it to be an exposition of traditional Trinitarian language, or traditional language about incarnation. But intentions are not enough. We should not just endlessly entertain wild speculations about God and about the Son of God. Let's get our message straight and let's carefully think through these matters. Speculations should be tethered to Scripture and kept to a minimum, and they should be judged by reason. And part of reason is just our God-given common sense, our ability to recognize certain truths and to know them without establishing them by any argument. 
these truths can have to do with metaphysics, logic, or simple reading comprehension. They are truths which any normal adult should know, at least if they've had the right sorts of experiences, although any particular adult may fail to know a self-evident truth because of her education, her allegiance to certain theories or to certain groups of people, her own pride in her own speculations, etc. Now, a number of the self-evident truths that I'll discuss involve the concept of a self. A self, I claim, is the proper referent of proper names and personal pronouns. A self is a who and not merely a what. A self is a being which, in principle, can be in interpersonal relationships, that is to say, friendships, whether those are between equals or whether they're hierarchical. So a self is able, in principle, to know, to will, to intentionally act, and to communicate. Of course, the paradigm example of selves are human selves. But there are plenty of other beings which people believe in, which, if they're real, would also be selves. These would include angels, demons, deities, and countless mythological creatures, leprechauns, buddhas, asuras, etc., in my view, there are borderline cases of selves. So if you say, what about my pet dog? Doesn't he have knowledge, will, the ability to intentionally act, the ability to communicate? Can't he be in an interpersonal relationship? Well, nearly so. I don't think they can do those things in the way that a normal human can. But I would just say that they're borderline cases of selves to the extent that they have complex relationships with humans, and with one another. Now, some philosophers and theologians want to kick up a cloud of dust when it comes to the idea of selves, but I think it's an idea which really any person has, and which any person uses in everyday life. Anyone who's a competent user of personal versus impersonal pronouns has the concept of a self. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some self-evident truths that are relevant to many different Trinity theories. What I'm going to do now is just go through and state and explain what I claim are a number of self-evident truths, and moreover, ones which are relevant to judging between different approaches to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And on the blog post for this episode, I'll have these actually written out in the order in which I discuss them. So check out the blog post for episode 222 at trinities.org if you want to see those. The first one is that things identical to the same thing are identical to each other. So abstractly, if A just is B and B just is C, then it has to be also that A just is C. To give a real-life example, 
Suppose that you were looking at some writings about the U.S. president as of 2010, and you came across the following expressions, B-H-O, and then the expression Barack H. Obama, and then the expression Michelle Obama's husband. And you're wondering, what's the relation between these three? Are we talking about one, two, or three different beings here? If you read enough of these memoirs or news reports or historical accounts, you'll find out that BHO just is Barack Hussein Obama. Those are one and the same, so that the terms BHO and Barack H. Obama are co-referring terms. And if you keep reading, you'll discover that Barack H. Obama just is Michelle Obama's husband in 2010. So you realize that those are not two, they are one. Okay, well, if BHO just is Barack, and Barack just is Michelle's husband, then it follows that BHO just is Michelle Obama's husband. So here the things that are identical to the same thing are BHO and Michelle Obama's husband. Both of them are identical to Barack H. Obama. Well, then it follows that BHO just is Michelle Obama's husband and vice versa. Is this obvious? Yes, This is obvious. How does this apply to Trinity theories? Some people think that the New Testament teaches that the Father just is God. And also they think that the Son just is God. Okay, well, if both of those are identical to the one God, then they have to be identical to one another. So it would follow then that the Father just is the Son. And that is something I would say that any Christian has to deny. We know it's false that the Father just is the Son, because different things are true of the two of them. They have actually differed, according to the New Testament. So, for instance, the Son died, and the Father never has died. Well, then we're talking about two beings, not about one and the same being. A different way to put it is, because things identical to the same thing are identical to each other, then this is an incoherent set of beliefs. The Father just is God, the Son just is God, and yet it's not the case that the Father just is the Son. No, those three things can't be true. You can only have two of those three. Now, I just referred to the second self-evident truth, which is this. Beings which have differed, do differ, will differ, or could differ at one time or in eternity are two beings, not one. And by differing here, we just mean being intrinsically different. Not being thought of differently, but just being different. Whether that's an essential difference or a non-essential difference, doesn't matter. Some philosophers and logicians call this the distinctness of discernibles. And it's all just based on the view that at a single time, a thing can't be and not be the same way. This is something... I claim that everyone knows and that everyone is able to apply. That is, if they're a normal adult, not in the grip of some really strange philosophical theory. We deploy this principle in cases like the following. Suppose we're trying to figure out who a certain criminal is, and we find out that the strangler, whoever this was, had large feet. They left large footprints at the crime. And then we also find out that at that time we're talking about, the time of the murder, This guy, Bob, did not have large feet. 
Okay, it follows that Bob is not the strangler and the strangler is not Bob. Because one and the same guy can't have large feet and also not have large feet at the same time. Right, and this is why you don't want to just confuse God and Jesus. If you're a Trinitarian, you think that God is intrinsically triune, but you don't think that Jesus is triune. You don't think Jesus is tripersonal. Okay, so you have to distinguish between God and Jesus. They're not just one and the same. Or if you just look at the New Testament, you see that God sent his only son to be the savior of the world, but Jesus did not send his only son to be the savior of the world. Okay, well, that's an intrinsic difference. It has to do with their own intentional action. So you know that the one is not the other. We're not talking about two names for the same being. We're talking about two beings, one of which sent a son and the other of which never did that. The third self-evident truth is that if X is divine and Y is divine and X and Y are different, that is to say, not numerically identical, then there are at least two divine beings. Maybe there are more, but there have to be two because X and Y are different and each one is divine. This doesn't need any defending or really even explaining. I mean, it doesn't matter what type of being we're talking about. We can say if X is human and Y is human and X and Y are different, then there are at least two human beings. Or we could be talking about turnips or potatoes or cupcakes or just about any sort of thing you please. The fourth self-evident truth just has to do with the idea of an essence. This is the concept of defining properties that a certain thing cannot lack so long as it exists. It's properties that a certain type of thing has to have. Not everybody in philosophy believes in essences, but if you do, then if X has the essence divinity and Y has the essence divinity and X and Y are different, then there are at least two deities, that is to say, divine beings, beings with divinity. Now, some people, when they first hear this, might say, hey, you can't say that's self-evident, that's begging the question. In other words, that's just assuming something that any Trinity theory will deny. Okay, but this isn't something that any Trinity theory will deny. If you look at some three-self theories, like theories by William Hasker or by Richard Swinburne, they agree that there are actually three divine beings. Those are the, quote, persons of the Trinity. For them, they are beings. And each one has the essence divinity. Again, four is going to seem just as obvious as any principle referring to any other essential kind, assuming there are essential kinds, that is to say essences. So if X has the essence caninity, right, the property of being a dog, and Y has the essence caninity, and X and Y are different, then there are at least two canines, that is two beings with caninity, which is to say two dogs. Maybe there are more, but there have to be at least two, because these are two different beings, and each one is a dog. Number five, if there are three divine beings, they are not exactly one divine being, no matter how closely united they are in thought, will, and action. This, I think, is self-evident. Beings cooperating together Beings which are unified in how they think, how they react, and so on, even in what they want, 
beings who can only act with a wonderful sort of coordination together, yeah, there's still three beings. These things are not going to make them into one being. We really think the same with any sorts of selves. So you know how some people say that identical twins kind of have their own language going or have their own little society of two or they're on the same wavelength. Imagine that you meet some parents that have identical twin daughters, a couple of cute little girls, and they seem like they're always kind of reacting in tandem to things and playing together and they seem sort of inseparable. And the parents are talking to you and they say, hey, these twin girls of ours, they are so united in action, so united in thought and will. In fact, as best we can tell, they couldn't even disagree. So, you know, really, we only have one daughter, not two. Hmm, well, that doesn't seem to be good counting, does it? Two super-duper united daughters are two. Two kids, two daughters. Now, some Trinitarians have traditions of saying that the members of the Trinity cooperate in every one of their actions or in every one of their actions with respect to the cosmos. People say this. I wonder if they actually believe it, because it seems to me that any Trinitarian is going to think that there are some actions which are only done by one member of the Trinity. Other Trinitarians also like to riff on the theme of periochoresis, or mutual interpenetration, this idea that the one is in the other, and so they're constantly acting in concert, and maybe they couldn't disagree, and they're just about the same business. Well, okay, but that wouldn't make them one deity, right? If there are three divine beings that cooperate, that's just what you've got, is three divine beings that are cooperating. The sixth self-evident truth is, I think, just a case of basic reading comprehension. And so this isn't going to be something self-evident to any adult human as such, but it's going to be something that will be obvious to any careful reader of the New Testament who is not strongly biased by prior commitment to some incompatible theological theory. This is the truth that, according to New Testament authors, the Father and the one God are one and the same. In other words, the terms, the Father, your Father in heaven, God the Father, phrases involving the Father like that in the New Testament, are assumed to be co-referential to terms referring to the one God, such as God, the one true God, etc., how is it that this is obvious? Well, you'll notice that the authors will swap out the names, the Father and God, just for variety. That's one way. Another is just the overall portrayals. I mean, the one they pray to is the Father. The one that Jesus prays to is the Father. Jesus is supposed to be the Son of God, right? And the one who speaks and says, this is my Son, that's supposed to be the one he calls Father. Really, this assumed identity of the one God and the Father is just as clear in the New Testament, really, as the identity of Saul and Paul, or the identity of Abram and Abraham. This really is inconsistent with any Trinity theory, but it's really just 
a basic fact that anybody will pick up who's reading the New Testament with just basic level reading comprehension skills. It takes a sophisticated person to come along and muddy the waters, really, and say, hey, what about this obscure passage in that one? And maybe there's more to God than the Father. Maybe the Father is within God and not God himself. But yeah, it's really, honestly, about as clear as clear could be. It is, for the most part, an assumption and not something that the authors really make a point of stating, although it is stated here and there. Seventh self-evident principle is that the, quote, spirit of, end quote, a self is not supposed to be a different self than that self. Now, this is still pretty basic reading comprehension, I think. In Mark 14, 34, Jesus says, I am deeply grieved even to death. This is when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane or when he's about to pray. Imagine that he said instead, my spirit is grieved. Well, that would just mean the same thing. For your spirit to be grieved is just for you to be grieved. In this talk of spirit, when we're talking about human beings, I think it presupposes the distinction between spirit and body. So your spirit is that unseen inner aspect of yourself, right? The grief isn't on your surface like a sunburn would be or an injury like a cut. The grief is on the inner aspect of yourself, or if you like the inner component of you. Right, so if you say, my spirit is grieved, and someone thinks they're talking about your pet ghost or something, and they say, well, maybe you should talk to him and ask him if there's any way that you can help him to feel better. Whoops. No, they just, they don't understand this type of spirit talk. Okay, but if the spirit of a self is not supposed to be a different self than that self, but rather a part or aspect of it, what about the spirit of God? Well, presumably this would just be the inner, the unobservable aspect of God. Does this presuppose that God has a body as opposed to a spirit? Yeah, it probably does for some authors. You can argue that in the Old Testament, it's assumed that God has a body in some sense. That's an interesting and big subject. But the Spirit of God, if that's supposed to be like the hidden inner power of God, then that wouldn't be someone different than God. So I think this has some payoff when you realize that the Holy Spirit is synonymous with God's Spirit or with the Spirit of God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll discuss some self-evident truths which are relevant to oneself Trinity theories and some others which are relevant to three-self-trinity theories. One self-trinity theories are views where the, quote, persons of the trinity really end up being, well, something less than persons or less than selves. So with a one self-trinity, really there's just one self there and the three persons are three modes, three ways of living, three personalities, 
three somethings, but anyway, not three selves, because really God is a self and there's just one self there. Well, there's a good reason why people want to say that God is a self, but I'll get to that in a minute. So my eighth self-evident principle is, if X and Y enjoy an interpersonal relationship, then X and Y are not the same self, but are two different selves. Now, maybe one can be friends with oneself. You could talk about reflexive friendship, and that would only presuppose oneself. But when we're talking about person-to-person relationships, interpersonal relationships, that requires at least two. Now, as depicted in the New Testament, Jesus and the Father enjoy a deep interpersonal relationship. They talk to one another. They cooperate with one another. God sends Jesus, and Jesus obeys God. So it's not a friendship of equals, exactly, but it's a God-subject friendship. There's command and obedience there. Jesus puts his trust in God. He prays to God. He talks to God in front of everybody. He brings glory to God. And God turns around and exalts him. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's particularly a theme in John that they cooperate. They're about the same business. The father and I are one in the sense that they're about the same project. Okay, well, that's because they have a personal relationship with one another. Principle 10. As depicted in the New Testament, Jesus is one self and the Father is another self. So Jesus and the Father are not just two aspects of a self or two ways that one self lives or two manifestations of a self, two modes of a self, two presentations of a single self. No, they're two selves. They each individually have all the attributes of a self as described before. And moreover, they're two different ones, and they interact with one another in really neat ways. These three self-evident truths that I just mentioned, I think, are really a huge problem for any one-self trinity theory. Any one-self trinity theory, then, is going to just logically rule out that there's an interpersonal relationship between the Father and the Son. But then, that just seems to go right against the grain of the New Testament, The eleventh claim, I think, is just true by definition, and it's actually something which any one-self trinity theory is going to acknowledge. It says, if the trinity involves just one self, in some way composed of or lying behind the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then none of the Father, Son, and Spirit are selves. Right? If there's just one self there, there can't be three of them. If the one self is the triune God, then that's all the selves there are. There's just one self involved in the Trinity. Then whatever the Father, Son, and Spirit are, well, they're going to be something less. They're going to be maybe ways the one self lives or something like that. But again, it looks like you have theory against text here. Three self theories have been popular recently in large part because some theologians and philosophers have wanted to pay really close attention to the Bible and to acknowledge the genuine interpersonal relationship in the New Testament between the Father and the Son. 
And maybe we can throw in a third party there as well. At least that's the hope. The twelfth self-evident truth is just a conceptual one, that a self is a being or an entity, not merely an attribute, mode, action, or part of a being or entity. Selves have attributes. Selves maybe have modes, that is to say they exist in certain ways. Selves can perform actions. Maybe selves have parts. But anyway, the way we think of selves, a self is not just an attribute, mode, action, or a part of a being. A self is a certain being. That's just part of the concept we have. Now, some ideologies, like in Buddhist philosophy, they will deny that there are any selves. But this is part of what they're denying, that there are any such entities or beings. 13. No self is composed of other selves. That is to say, selves can't combine to form compound selves. This seems true to me. I think we go around assuming this. I mean, suppose we catch a bunch of criminals, say a robbery was committed, and we've got surveillance video of these three guys breaking the bank window, cracking the safe open, grabbing all the gold out, and taking the gold away. And we catch those three guys. Now, how many are we to bring to trial? How many personal beings, how many selves are there? Well, we're going to say three. We're not going to worry for one nanosecond about whether the three compose a fourth. I suggest that doesn't seem possible to us. Now, what's confusing is I think people will talk about persons and personalities, and they won't distinguish between selves and personalities, or selves and modes of selves, right? And so you think about yourself and you say, well, I am composed of many selves. I'm a dad. I'm a professor. I'm a friend. I'm a father. So there are selves that are composed of other selves, right? Well, no. We think there's just one self there, right? There's just different roles that one guy plays. If you like, you can talk about his different personalities or his different aspects or his different abilities and so on. But no, that's not a case of combining selves into some sort of compound self. It seems to me self-evident that no self is composed of other selves. Now, some clever metaphysician could try to describe a case where this is possible. Maybe it's possible, but I don't think this is how the world works. And I don't see why we should entertain this in the case of divine selves any more than we entertain it in the case of human selves. 14. Any deity just is a certain self. That is to say, the concept deity implies selfhood. A deity is something that, in principle, can be spoken to, or which can speak back, or at any rate, communicate. A deity, in principle, can perform intentional actions, and you might be able to get on their good side or their bad side. A deity is a self. 15. The, quote, God, end quote, of the Bible is supposed to be a necessarily unique deity. This one called God, the God, is supposed to be a God. Not just any old God, of course, but a God which couldn't have any peers. So, a necessarily unique deity. But a deity. Well, if that's true, then the God of the Bible is not merely a group of deities. 
Rather, the one God is supposed to himself be a deity. Some three-self-trinity theories have the trinity as three divine persons, which is to say three divine beings, and they don't combine to make a fourth person, but they're just really wonderfully coordinated and they couldn't disagree and so on. Okay, but it's obvious to any reader of the Bible that the one true God there is supposed to be a deity. Further, principle 16, the quote God, end quote, of the Bible is supposed to be a necessarily unique self. Why is that supposed to be basic reading comprehension? Well, this deity has proper name. They're constantly using personal pronouns for this deity and singular verbs. They talk about his thoughts, plans, emotions. He speaks and is spoken to. He enters into interpersonal relationships. I mean, he's a he. Not that he has to have literal sex or gender, but this is a personal being that we're talking about. If you saw any word translated as God in the Bible, and you supposed it was some sort of impersonal principle, some ineffable something or other, well, that's just a misunderstanding. Okay, but if the God of the Bible is supposed to be a necessarily unique self, then the one God is not just a group of selves. And I'll add, the one God is not just being itself. Being itself is not supposed to be a deity, nor is God supposed to be just an indescribable something which is beyond being and not being, etc. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some self-evident truths relating to worship. Principle 17. Worship is appropriately directed only to some self or other. Different way to put it would be that worship is an I-thou relation. You might have a certain sort of respect for or think positive thoughts about something which is impersonal, like the set of real numbers or something like that. But worship is where you're intending to interact with someone and you're trying to deliberately glorify that someone, and typically you're trying to address them or do something that you believe is in their sight, so to speak. You're trying to please them. So it only makes sense to worship a self. Now back to those three self-trinity theories, if the one, quote, God, turns out to merely be a group of selves and is not itself a self, then, quote, God, this thing is not an appropriate recipient of worship. Maybe the members of it or the parts of it are, but the Trinity would not be an appropriate object of worship if it's not a self. Principle 18. The primary and ultimate object of religious worship in the New Testament is the Father, also called God, Hotheos in Greek. 
Now, of course, in the New Testament, you're also supposed to worship the Son. And the Son, too, is supposed to be a self. And not just any old self, but someone who has been exalted to God's right hand. And the New Testament view is that worship given to the Son glorifies the Father who installed him in that place. But still, the primary and ultimate object of religious worship in the New Testament is God, also called the Father. Okay, well then, the one God can't be a mere group of selves. That wouldn't make sense. Now, as I mentioned before, some three-self Trinity theorists have this charming discourse about the Trinity being an eternal dance of friendship or like a perfect family, a perfect circle of friends. It's the ultimate three amigos. But then there's what I call the problem of the missing amigo. Principle 19, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is never portrayed as enjoying an interpersonal relationship with the Father or with Jesus. Just basic reading comprehension, people. It's not there. Now, that's consistent with traditional views about the Holy Spirit, but this is a fact that needs accounting for, no matter what your theory is. The Holy Spirit fills believers. It's sent by God and by Jesus. The Spirit of God empowers Jesus, according to Luke 4. It's spoken about as interceding. But still, despite all that, God never talks to it. It never talks back. Jesus never talks to it. It never talks back. It's not portrayed as a someone who cooperates with them. Why is that? 20. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament is never portrayed as or taught to be an appropriate object of religious worship you would kind of expect to find it being portrayed as an appropriate object of religious worship if you were assuming the truth of some trinity theory or other. After all, the Holy Spirit is supposed to be just as divine as the Father and as the Son. And so if they're worthy of worship, he should be too, right? But he isn't. And really, he, that is, the Holy Spirit, it's not really an additional character in the narrative, It is, of course, spoken of in personal terms several times, but that's consistent with it not actually being a self, because sometimes we personify things and we just decide to describe them as if they were selves, even though we think they're not. So what do you think? Do you agree that these are self-evident? Do you agree that they're true? Do you think there are counterexamples which show that these principles are not true? Or do you think there's some other kind of argument that can be made against them? Let us know what you think in the comments section of the blog post for this episode at trinities.org or at the Trinities Podcast Facebook group. Next week on the Trinities Podcast, I'll discuss some further truths that I claim are self-evident truths which are relevant to evaluating relative identity trinity theories, trinity theories which are basically an appeal to mystery, and then some principles which are relevant to evaluating various approaches to incarnation.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.